On the Empire Podcast this week, we go face to fecking face with Colin Farrell and the man who wrote that scene in Basic Instinct, and then a whole film filled with scenes like that, the wonderfully exuberant screenwriting legend Joe Esterhaus, while we discuss the relative merits, or lack thereof, of the likes of Carrie and Saving Mr. Banks on the only movie podcast that does expect the Spanish Inquisition. Me. Oh, I thought for sure Michael Palin would come in, and that's rather disappointing, actually. Anyway, on with the show. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three colleagues who've temporarily shelved their objections to my terrifying bad breath, my ferocious body odour, and my proclivity for inappropriate fondling to join me here in a locked room for the next hour or so. More fool them. First up, trying to hide her distaste, is a lady whose powers of geek recall are so complete that QuizUp has banned her from downloading the app. It is, of course... Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello. I'd like to share a piece of information with you at this point. What is it? The Spanish Inquisition, by law, had to give everybody notice in writing 30 days beforehand, so everybody expected the Spanish Inquisition. But surely they must have have cut some corners and, you know... Apparently not. No? No. You know what the scariest thing about the Spanish Inquisition is? uh, Is that it lasted for over two centuries. Everyone have a Spanish Inquisition fact all of a sudden. Do you know what the scariest thing about it is? Is that far more people died in the uh, the witch trials in England. And actually, the Spanish Inquisition and such things go in terms of 16th century justice. Wasn't that bad? Well, that doesn't Mm -hmm. surprise me. They used, like, big cushions and the comfy chair. I know, right? Who's going to die from that? The comfy chair! Uh, Did we all get Python tickets? No. Chris and Did I we try for Python tickets? Probably about 600 quid on Python tickets between yeah. us. It was a lot of money. Helen, why aren't you in Quiz Up? Um, because you would rule Quiz Up. It would, it would destroy my life. I it try to avoid all games. It doesn't actually. It doesn't. You only play about 10, 1200 games a day. Uh, next up is a man who uh, submitted his own category of film questions to Quiz Up only for the makers of the game to reject it. Apparently, for some reason, they weren't quite ready for a quiz on the thought specular Kislowski's White and Streitfeld's female perversions. It is, of course, our art house guru, Phil Dissemlian. Hello, Phil. Hi, Chris. That is the title of a real dissertation. I That's looked right. it up. I wrote uh, it. Did you? Yeah. Under your pen name, Francis L. Restuccia of Boston College. Restuccia. Restuccia. It's pronounced. Restuccia, probably. No, Restuccia. no, I'm telling you. Oh, you're telling me? It's Restuccia. Sorry, Fran. Sorry about that. Um, you How can call you? me Fran. You good? Uh, apologies to bringing, dragging her into this quagmire <laughs> <Yeah>. of <laughs> tenuous introductions. Can I just someone runs up to her Francis, which yeah. I very much doubt, I very Boston much doubt. College. Yeah. Sorry about that. But right. um, I, I, what is, what are you saying here? The thought specular. The thought specular. What's Streitfeld's female perversion? I have no idea. Helen? Uh, I'm afraid I don't know Ali, either. any ideas? You don't want to know. Okay. Anyway, yeah. that's me. It's perverse. It's good to see you. Uh, thank you, man. Uh, and last but not least is a man who's already unlocked the following achievements in QuizUp's podcast editing levels. Splicer. Scissors. Schoenmacher. It is, of course, Ali Plum. Hello. Hello. Uh, okay, that's it. All the introductions done. Uh, first up, let's have it at it with your questions. This is from... Uh, this is an interesting one, actually. This is from uh, at Twenty First Century Cat, who asks, "Can this week's podcast be done in the style of Luther?" Ali, what do you think? No. So that's a no, then. Uh, and the first genuine question is from Chris Hammond of Sheffield via email, who asks, "I absolutely buzz of Holiday Road from National Lampoon's Vacation." What are your movie song guilty pleasures? And quite rightly so, that's a good one by Lindsay Buckingham. Well, first, darling, one should never feel guilty about pleasure. Blimey, there's a female perversion if ever I saw one. <laughs> I don't know. I think that might be a Mae West line, but honestly, I forget. I was inspired to think of Put a Little Love in Your Heart from Scrooged. 
scoop one. By this. Yeah. Um, it's something that Ollie Richards and I have been campaigning for Lucky Voice to add to their singing lists for quite some time, <laughs> but they haven't got the, the right version anyway. So, uh, so fingers crossed for this year. Reminds me, we need a sort of Christmas karaoke. Yeah, we do. Okay. That reminds me of Marley and Marley. One of the things that I enjoy about working alongside Helen is that whenever any, it, whenever things get stressful, you always break into a rendition of... Raindrops and Roses. <laughs> Raindrops and Roses, things. exactly. So there's that. It's also generally whenever someone says something horrendously wrong, isn't that right, Helen? It's usually when people are about to fight. That's Basically, in our family, that's what you, you, you know, saying to ca- get people to calm down and stop fighting. Mm-hmm. So... I can't believe I sing it often in this office because obviously we all get along very, it's very well harmonious. and it's it's pretty rainbowy and it's pretty kittens. Harmonious. I'm not sure whether it's like a guilty pleasure, but I've always got Every Sperm is Sacred in my head. No more so than recently, obviously, with the Monty Python news. Are they yeah. going to sing it in the live show? They are going to sing it in the live show. The wow. Black Kids will be back. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Hindu, Taoist, Mormon, spill theirs just anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Marley and Marley, by the way, we should probably be mentioning this from the Muppet Christmas Carol in case you don't know. <laughs> You bloody well should know. You should know that. Um, I, I, I would also like to put in Batman's uh, Bat Dance by Prince, uh, which, <laughs> yes. is, which is a cracker. Carla DeVito's We Are Not Alone, which is the music that's playing as the breakfast clubbers are dancing. We are not alone. Yeah. Generally, a lot of these oh, tend to be yes. from movies from the 80s, mm. don't they? Mm. That's um, certainly true. Define guilt. I mean, really. <laughs> because... Every week we, we gather together and we debate these issues. <laughs> these, these burning <laughs> issues. These burning issues. And we keep the world spinning in, on its axis. But this week, I think there's a correct answer to this. Really? Yes, Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. Oh, that's a weird noise to make. But okay. <laughs> what was that? Uh, I don't know. I just whenever I think of Kenny Loggins, I make that noise. Uh, female perversion. Um, yeah. Uh, Danger Zone is, for me, it's sort of where music where music goes when, it's, when it wants to punch the air. And That's a good one. I've got a few. Um, I think we were talking in the office yesterday about You're the Voice by John Farnham which is on both Hot Rod and this year Alan Partridge Mm. Alpha Papa and that's an amazing song If you go to Australia and you claim that that is a guilty pleasure They will kill you? They will kill you Isn't that what Wolf Creek's all about? Yes It's about people thinking that John Farnham is anything less than the greatest singer-songwriter in the history of music I think that song uh, is compelling evidence for that to be it's honest, a good song. that song has everything. It's got a bagpipe solo, for God's sake. You introduced me to that scene in in Hot Rod. Yes, and I will always be grateful for it because it's <laughs> hilarious. I love it. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got a few. I've got uh, bit by bit by Stephanie Mills, uh, which is the title track. Well, it's not the title track. It doesn't have the same title as a movie, but it is from Fletch. And it's one of those movies. One of those songs was written for the movie, so Fletch is actually referenced in the lyrics, which is exactly the same as the uh, Michael Caine sung uh, theme song from Get Carter. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we also have Mavis Staples' Christmas Vacation from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, yep. which I love. Um, Friday Night's A Great Life for Football by Bill... B- Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins. Oh, Bilbo... Talking about... Yes, the, the washing, the, the up, washing song. up song from The <laughs> Hobbit. Well, that's what Bilbo Baggins hates. Uh, Friday Night's A Great Life for Football by Bill Medley. One half of the Righteous Brothers uh, at the beginning of The Last Boy Scout uh, during the credit sequence. Uh, has never been released commercially but it's one of the greatest songs of all time. Do check it out. Uh, he sings it to camera, oh, surrounded amazing. by a bevy of, of female dancers while the credits dance around this, him. And stuff. This was it's from really the 80s good. too, was it? Uh, 1991. Yeah, but that, that was pretty much the 80s still. It was pretty yeah. much the 80s. I'm sure Shane Black wrote it in the 80s, but yeah. that, that is awesome. And I don't think we can talk about uh, Guilty Pleasures movies without mentioning the Max Rebo Band hmm. featuring Size Noodles and Jedi Rocks. 
which uh, was added to Return of the Jedi, the special edition since 1997. It is, by every standard and criterion that you can apply to music, absolutely dreadful. It is... It is basically kicking dirt in the in the face of the memory of Return of the Jedi, and yet I love it. I can't stop listening to what it. It's amazing. It's got that you know that bit where Mac, you know, the, the guy goes. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I've got about four more. Uh, we've got in my head anyway. Emperor's New Groove has an opening song called "Perfect World" from Return of the Jedi. Absolutely incredible. Mm. Oh, different emperor. Uh, another Disney film recently, Mother Knows Best from Tangled. Great song. Is often in my head. Also, does anybody recognise the band name Benny Jive and the Uptown Five? No. Benny oh, Jive I know the name. Why do I know the name? Benny Jive and the Uptown Five. I know the name as well, but they are teetering on the edge of becoming a different band. <gasps> is this the quiz? It is I mean, from it's... High Fidelity. It is Jack Black's oh, yes, yes, yes. band as he sings. Let's get it on. Uh, yeah, and also I should point out uh, for the Emperor's New Groove that is sung by Tom Jones, and he appears in the film in a cameo as a very small man who jumps out of a big cake with a massive orange afro. Mm, amazing. amazing. Just oh, when, jinx. when you mentioned High Fidelity, that reminded me. I was actually watching an episode of Parks and Recreation last night, the finale of season one, with uh, Chris Pratt going through the, the names of his band, uh, which is one of the funniest name, the funniest things I've ever seen. Helen, you have disregarded the rules of jinx. Did we need to do a pinky swear or something? I've at that jinxed point? you, and therefore you can't speak until someone says your name. But I've just said your name. Oh, so all's well. Damn it! All right, uh, that's one of those ones where we literally just uh, sit here uh, listing things for forever. The Again, theme uh, from sneakers. Da, 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 Against da, da. all odds, take a look at me now. Yes, I'm just an empty oh, space. So space or face? Space. I'm just space. Yep. Something yeah. left here to remind me of the mm. memory of your face. There you go. Yes. See ya. There you go. That's a good one. All right. Thank you for that one, Chris Hammond. Uh, this one is from the guy who sent in about 40 questions to the podcast last week uh, from Albuquerque. It's Casey Bennettberg, Heisenberg, Heisen Bennett, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he says, I've seen a few great compilation videos on YouTube of the greatest movie insults and was wondering if you had any favorite insults. He spells favorite in the American way, but we'll let him off. Or name calling moments from the movies I personally love it when Michael in Office Space finds out he's going to be fired from the company and exclaims that they are cockos <laughs> there are some good ones I love Office Space mm. it, the, the, it's not really an insult at anyone in the film is it but when when he says when, when, when somebody asks him why, why he's called Michael Bolton why he doesn't change his name and he says I don't know why I should change my name he's the one that sucks <laughs> 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 Which I really love. Awesome. I've got a series of quotes uh, for you here, which I'd like you to partake in as a quiz format type thing. Okay, yeah. So can oh, you hello. guess the film? We from haven't done a quiz for ages. I love this. The it's insult. Good. Yes. Can you guess on the on film. It. I'm going to start with some really easy ones. You punch like you take it up the ass. Emperor's New Groove. Close. Mm. You punch like you take it up the ass. Three colours white. It's not like escape plan. That was you punch like a vegetarian. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good that insult. Yeah. That's Raging Bull. I honestly oh. thought you were going to get that straight away. No. Uh, you're going to get this one, Chris. You are a smelly pirate hooker. Why don't you go back <laughs> to your home on Whore Island? That would be Anchorman. I don't like your jerk-off name. I don't like your jerk-off behaviour. And I don't like you, jerk-off. Do I make myself clear? <laughs> I, don't get, I don't know that one. Come on. Um, Ian Nathan would be getting this straight away. Really? Oh, Big well, Lebowski? Correct, it Big is Lebowski. the Big Lebowski. Oh, yeah. Monty, you terrible sea bomb. With now. Yes. Ooh, second use of the C word. Oh, naughty. Uh, second? Not last week. Oh, okay. I'm paraphrasing here, but 
I, I'd forgotten what your eyes remind me of, but they're exactly the same. Piss holes in the snow, get Carter. There we go. Mm-hmm. I fart in your general direction. Yeah, the French taunters from Monty Python, yeah. the Holy Grail. Your father smells of elderberries. Your, your, mother, your mother was, was a, hamster. a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. You are a sad, strange little man and you Toy have story. my pity. Mm. Written by Joss Whedon. Yeah. That line. Go Joss. It looks to me like the best part of you ran down the crack of your mama's ass and Yay. ended up as a brown stain on the mattress. Gone with the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Full metal jacket. It was one of the two. Correct. One of the two classics. <laughs> It's like watching a bunch of retards trying to fuck a doorknob. Dodgeball. Finally, mm. if you know me well enough, you get this. You bunch of sausage Nigels. Anything snatch. with the word sausage in it. Keep thinking, snatch. Lockstock. Keep thinking. Oh. Swept away. <laughs> Crank two, when he walks oh. up to the two guys, we're yeah. trying to put an electric uh, voltage current belt yeah. thing around the dog. Uh, I'd also like to add, you warthog-faced buffoon. From Princess Bride. The Princess, Princess Bride. Bride. Uh, and I'm just guessing because yeah, I know. it's you. I'm, I'm pretty uh, predictable. And uh, this is kind of... Uh, the full line is, Into the mud, scum queen. Mama two brains. The man that was on my brains. list. Wow. I had that as well. That was a that was a Empire spine line back in the day. It was, yeah. I, I don't give a tuppenny fuck about your moral conundrum, you meat-headed shit sack. Oh, that's recent, isn't that's it? That's harsh. Meat-headed shit I don't sack. give a tuppenny fuck about your moral conundrum, you meat-headed shit-sack. Topney, eh? So it's a period piece. It is a period piece. We're looking for something maybe Victorian, maybe Edwardian. Knocking on that. It is... Wait, wait, wait. wait, 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 wait. Is it Coen Brothers? No. no. I know this it's one. Bar- it's in a film that's directed by another... Uh, by the director of another film we've talked about. What, in this podcast? Yeah, in this... Uh, what, is that the one fucking Sherlock Holmes? No, it's not the one fucking Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Mm. I don't give a tuppenny fuck about your moral conundrum, you meat-headed shitsack. Everyone at home will be going, It's Gangs of New York! Oh, of course, of course. Wait, yes. is it Gangs of New York? It is Gangs oh, of New York. Oh, amazing. We can edit this out so we don't look as stupid <laughs> as we <laughs> know. It's um, Glengarry Glen Ross uh, yeah. for me. Yes. Um, Alec Baldwin's amazing speech is basically just a nine-minute insult, <laughs> which is which is awesome. Uh, I've got some quotes here from it. Um that watch costs more than your car. I made $970,000 last year. How much you make? You see, pal, that's who I am. You're nothing. Nice guy. I don't give a shit. Good father. Fuck you. Go home and play with your kids. You want to work here? Clothes. You think this is abuse? You think this is abuse, you cocksucker? I'm just ad-libbing now. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's amazing. I love that that oh. uh, that whole speech. And there's a there's a moment later on in the, uh, in the film where uh, Al Pacino calls Kevin Spacey uh, a stupid effing C-bomb. And that's uh, a fantastic <sighs> moment. We're kind of in a Christmassy vein at the moment. Sure. Getting into it, you yeah. Know, looking at trees and our. You're wearing your willy jumper. I am wearing my willy jumper. You know, so we've mentioned National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation already, but there's an amazing moment in that where Chevy Chase, as Clark W. Griswold, has a meltdown towards the end, and it's a fantastic. Not really an insult necessarily, but you should check it out if you haven't already seen it. It's a fantastic stream of consciousness rant from Chevy Chase. In the pseudo insult thing, uh, the one of the two good moments in Jingle All the Way. I happen to write about it, so it's in my head. Is when Arnie says, "Oh, poor baby," uh, which isn't quite an insult, but I still use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I eat green braids for breakfast. Sometimes these these bits of dialogue give the actors a chance to really like just throw themselves into it. Think about um, um, Drill Instructor Hartman, who was of course played by Arlie Ermy. Used Lee. to be was an actual drill instructor, right? The Army. Or the army, yeah. So, so that se- that sequence, so he was just doing what he did, I think. And um, Arlie Ehrman was in the army. Army, 
So um, Arlie Ermey was in the army. Arlie Army, yeah. Okay, just to clear that up. Okay. Early. And Dennis Freen, obviously, next copper. Yeah. One of my favourite. Oh my bits god, of, he's not got just s- insults, but movie yeah. dialogue. In fact, his whole career is just one long insult, but just genius stuff. Well, we talked about Freena on the podcast when he, when he passed away, but um, uh, Snatch, he's got some amazing insults in that, and obviously Midnight Run. Yes, he's got some amazing ones in that as well. Doesn't he come back through U.S. immigration and they go and he goes to the to the customs guy? You have been to England. Don't go. Don't go to England. Yeah, uh, and he he introduced himself to Mike Reed in the film. With the immortal words, Shit da- sit down and shut up, you bald-headed fuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's as good as it gets. Uh, and this year, we should mention, we should mention the world's end because that had a great insult in it. Get back in your rocket and fuck off back to Legoland. Why don't you get you in your rocket? And fuck off back to Legoland. You, yeah. I apologise for the use of the, the language. Okay, let's move on because we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, this one is from Sarah L. Fire uh, Facebook. Ooh. I know, can you credit it? A Facebook question. Uh, she lives in Pittsburgh and she asks, um, since summer blockbusters tend to be overlooked by the Oscars, are there any that you feel deserved some sort of recognition? Pittsburgh, of course, George A. Romero's uh, town, you know, where he made all those movies, but also where The Dark Knight Rises was filmed, which puts me in mind of The Dark Knight. Yes, I think The Dark Knight's the obvious one here. I mean, it did get a nomination, I think, didn't it? But, won an Oscar for, well, obviously Heath Ledger won, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but um, but I mean, I think that's very rare. I, I think there, I mean, there, there clearly is sort of ghettoization at the Oscars, and uh, a so-so biopic has a much better chance of doing well than a brilliant blockbuster. And I think that's a little bit old-fashioned. Yeah, The Dark Knight. I think um, I remember whenever we uh, were sitting up for the Oscar nominations in two thousand and nine, it would have been, and uh, it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, and despite a lot of. Uh, a lot of predictions that it would be because it had just made a billion dollars yeah. and was widely held as one of the best blockbusters uh, of all time and it didn't get a Best Picture nomination and that was I think one of the reasons why they moved up to 10 nominations after that after that year uh, I think that was a large part of that um, uh, 9 or 10 whatever it is these days uh, and also they, they obviously tend to split the American release schedule into seasons and we're very yeah. much now in the Oscar season and blockbusters obviously get released a lot earlier in the year and uh, even those that, that would be good enough, maybe, and it's very rare, it's very, very rare, let's be honest, uh, to qualify for Oscars tend to be forgotten about by the, by the time people start voting. That's partly true. I mean, to be honest, the last film released early in the year to do well at the Oscars was um, The Silence of the Lambs back in 1991. Everything else pretty much has been Oscar season, um, which it starts in sort of September, October. But let's be honest, if you, if you come out in September, you're kind of crippling your own chances a lot of the time. Something like Atonement was buzzed about when it first came out and completely forgotten by the time that the Oscars really came around. Got a few nominations, but no wins. I mean, I think there are... I think Honestly, I think the Oscars should be a little bit more progressive, I guess. I think they should consider um, animated films a bit more. I mean, we've only had two nominations for for Pixar and, and no wins in the best picture category yet they've they've sort of pushed them into the the animation ghetto and really left it at that and i think you know certainly something like up is really as good as as anything that was nominated for best picture that year well it was nominated for best picture but it's still i think it you know should have had a bit more of a run because nobody expected it to win and sure enough it didn't and then also I mean the, the other thing that Oscar famously overlooks are comedy performances um, if you don't make people cry with sadness you may as well forget about it and I think that's a real real shame because I think Johnny Depp in the first Pirates 
Yeah. He got nominated, but again, no one expected much of it, and sure enough, nothing materialised. Yeah, it's one of my big bugbears. Ali and I were talking about this the other day, actually, in the office, uh, wondering when was the last great comedy performance. We were talking about Kevin Kline. We were talking about the last time a actor won for a comedy performance, and that was Kevin Kline for A Fish Called Wonder. Well, probably Marissa Tomei for My Cousin Finney. Mm. Was, was, yeah, the actress, yeah. Best, best supporting actress. Both, yeah. both, it was supporting for Kevin both, Kline both, as well. Yeah, yeah. Supporting, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, comedy is one of my, my big bugbears when it comes to the Oscars, and I know we've gone way off the question now, but... Uh, for example, Peter Capaldi were in the loop. I, I thought was amazing that year, and uh, in my opinion, definitely should have been nominated. I saw someone the other day, and this is very interesting. You guys may not agree with this, but I saw someone the other day tweet that um, in an ideal world, Nick Frost for The World's End would mm. be uh, considered for an Oscar this year. And I, I, you know, I'd never ever considered that. I'd never even thought about that. But when I started thinking about it. I went, actually, you know what? There's something in that. There's something because he's really, really good in that film, and so is Simon Pegg. Actually, he has a very, very difficult role, but. Yeah, no one ever gets her, throws her weight behind, especially a small British film like that yeah. that hasn't really d- comes out. But also a genre film like that, you don't get any film, credit yeah. for for. And I, I agree, those are both great performances, um, but you don't get any credit for great performances in a genre film, generally speaking. Uh, the uh, the question is, of course, about summer blockbusters. Uh, so people at home are probably be going, "What about Avatar? What about Titanic?" And these are all you know the two of the biggest films of all time, and they got a lot of Oscar love. And they were not summer blockbusters; they mm. they released bang in the middle of Oscar season, so they were very fresh in people's memories. And there definitely was a feeling that that Hollywood should reward these films and Return of the King as well there was a sense that Hollywood should reward themselves almost for doing this incredible job and reaching these many people what's interesting is that Return of the King Titanic Avatar were all rewarded something like The Avengers the third greatest the third third greatest film of all time the third (laughs) biggest film of all time uh, was not no uh, recognised by the Oscars in any way. I think maybe it got a couple of effects and odds. I'm not, it did, I'm not yeah. entirely sure. Um, but yeah, interesting. It's it's a shame. I mean, I think m- maybe not for the Avengers because that was very much an ensemble piece, but Robert Downey Jr. for Iron Man I think is, is a really, really good performance. It's just not an Oscar-y kind of a performance and stuff like that is always going to get overlooked. Mm. Hey-ho. We could be here all day. And best comedy, of course. Last, last best picture of comedy. Anybody remember? Was it Marty? Annie Hall? Annie Hall. Mm. 1977. I know. Does it make you sad? I mean, it makes me sad. I mean, I mean obviously, that this brings back to the age-old conversation of Star Wars and in that year as well. But it is, you know, I can't work it out in my head. But a long time ago. Fantastic. Uh, sorry, Sarah L, for going so far off the beaten track with that question. Uh, thank you all for your questions. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the usual channels. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Otherwise, we probably won't see your question. We're on Facebook, Empire Magazine, and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. Time now for our first interview. Joe Esterhaus is one of the most colourful figures in screenwriting, a larger than life rock and roll bear of a man, most famous for writing the lurid, sexy likes of Jagged Edge. Basic Instinct and, of course, Showgirls. While off-screen, his wildlife was very notorious and is the basis of several compelling books by Esther House, including Hollywood Animal. You should check it out. It is fantastic. He's a changed man these days, though. And when he was in town recently for an appearance at the London Screenwriters Festival, he popped into the pod booth to talk to myself and Nick DeSemian. Enjoy. So in terms of in terms of rules, I mean, you wrote a book a few years ago, which is amazing, The Devil's Guide to Hollywood. Yes. Which is essentially... A screenwriting guide for people who aren't Robert McKee enthusiasts. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate which, that. Which is great. So, have you ever had people read that book? Because I, I thought it was fantastic. Yes. And come up to you and go, "I've written a script based on the principles you outlined in this book." Right. Has that happened to you? I've had something better than that. I was in I was in our local church one day, and um, and this guy comes shambling in. I'm there with my family. Um, on a Sunday morning, and this guy shambles in, and everyone else is sitting down and praying, essentially. And the guy shambles in, and he goes, "Joel, 
I looked up and I said, yeah. He said, I wrote my script. And I said, dude, we're in church, we're praying, all right? He said, but I read your book and, and, and I wrote my script. I said, well, which of my books did you read? He said, The Devil's Guide. I said, wrong book. I can't, I can't look at your script now. Sorry. And they escorted him out, you know, so anything can happen. No, that's why I said, we'll see what happens. No, I enjoy doing these things. I, I, I like talking to, to young screenwriters um, because I think a lot of them get some really bad information and bad advice from people like McKee, who's written one um, script that's been made on television. Um, and then there are other legendary screenwriters who essentially teach young screenwriters to be cowed and never to speak up and do mm. stuff like pretend you're taking notes for a producer um, when you're not, when you're not hardly listening. Um, and the and then there's another one who said that the screenwriters are here um, to to work out the director's vision. Mm. Well, I reject that. I think that's bad and marginalizing advice because if you write your own scripts as spec scripts and it comes from your own heart and soul, mm. um, you are the one initiating that and the vision is yours. So I think you have a responsibility, at least a good option, to, to fight the good fight and not allow um, people to change your script um, to... Uh, as they say in Hollywood, to piss in it, um, you know, um, to, to to keep it as clean as possible in terms of the original vision. Yeah. I realize that, uh, that 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 not a lot of people give screenwriters that advice, but through the course of making seventeen films, um, the uh, and, and doing it for almost forty years, um, I think that's the only way to go if you're going to continue to be able to look yourself in the mirror on your next one and to really put your heart and soul into it. Mm. Because people will try to beat that out of you. And, um, and and also in the process of that, they can turn what, you, what you've what you written into a really bad movie. I I wrote Basic Instinct with that ambiguous ending and, and got into a gigantic fight with the director, Paul Verhoeven, whom I respect, um, and Michael Douglas, whom I don't. Um, and the about the ending of that that movie, and Michael wanted Michael kept saying that Sharon one ups him at every turn, and that the movie should end with with uh, Michael shooting her, killing her. Well, that's TV dribble. You know, so <laughs> I don't want to do that. That's and I, and I and I did go a little apeshit, and then then they ultimately Paul did bring another writer in, but he canned him and wound up shooting my original first first draft version. Thank God. Were you on set for uh, the whole of Basic Instinct? I don't like being on set. Um, I got into big trouble once on the set of uh, Betrayed, which were in Calgary. Um, they did, and it was a long day, and then I came to my hotel room at like 1.30 in the morning, and there was a, a uh, gaffer there who worked the crew and all of that stuff. And, and by that time, I'd been listening to a days full of, of different suggestions on the piece because we were right in the middle of shooting. And he said, Joe, and I said, yeah, he said, I'm blah, blah, blah. And I've been waiting for you because I have a really great idea for the third act. Okay, and I just picked him up by his lapels and bounced him off the wall and said, good evening. <laughs> you know, so, no, no, <laughs> you got to fight for what you believe, guys. You know? Now, I, I, I grant you that there are more civil ways of doing that. And, most, <laughs> and I really like being nice to people, I really do. Um, and um, and um, the, the, I have a very loving family. And um, and I like to live my life in a way that that 
maintains the the dignity of the people that I'm dealing with or working with, and I and I certainly agree that bouncing someone off a wall by their lapels, it's not a nice thing to do, and I apologize profusely, and I think mm. my apology was accepted. Okay, <laughs> that didn't happen with Michael Douglas. <laughs> Nah, he's, he's an actor. They don't matter. I said so. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> teasing. It was a big fight, and uh, and I I just felt that it was it was the wrong advice for the movie, and it would have turned the movie into something else. And and uh, and I've heard from so many people through the years about that ambiguous ending and that ice pick at the end mm. that I think it was a good call. Um, the the man who had the Carol go at the time, Mario Casar, and Paul um, were adamant that they not focus group that that uh, that ending they, with the ice pick because they were certain that the ambiguity was going to put focus put people back mm. and that they would have trouble with financiers if they did it and I and I applaud the courage of both of them for for not allowing the focus groups because I think it would have made a difference you know but I'm guessing you have seen scenes that you've written executed in a way that you wouldn't have done it. I remember Sliver. There's yes. there's a kind of the notorious bathtub scene, which got a lot of kind of ridicule at the time. Yes, you were you unhappy with how that was done? You should have seen some of the outtakes. You know, the, 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 the <laughs> outtakes are real collector's items. You know, so <laughs> Philip Noyes described one of those outtakes with uh, Billy Baldwin and Sharon Stone in a love scene as as rutting r-u-t-t-i-n-g they were rutting philip said you know so <laughs> the outtakes are great yeah of course they didn't you know what happens i look it's ultimately it's it is a collaborative process um the, the philip opted to film that it, the way he did i'm not a director i've never wanted to be a director i don't have the talent to be a director and uh and philip is a world-renowned director i died i I looked at the rough cuts and then I and then I gave him my opinion, um, but ultimately, all I can do is is be very strong in my opinion and try to change his mind. I did that, and uh, and Philip opted to 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 go with that scene the way he did. I the screenwriter has power that way. Let's be honest; it's really limited. The, the biggest power you have, um, and maybe the only real power that counts in that sense, is to be a colossal pain in the ass when when you see something that's wrong. You know, and to be willing to, to, to go to the wall. Hmm. And I'm Hungarian born, and I know how to be a colossal pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so I do that sometimes. But past that, you can't do a whole lot. You know. Do you watch uh, Do you watch a lot of movies these days? And what's sure, impressed yeah, yeah. you? I, I like some things recently. I, I liked uh, Captain Phillips. Um, you know, and I, I think he's I think a guy. Greengrass is a very talented guy. Um, the uh, I liked Rush. Um, I, I myself was disappointed in Gravity, but a lot of people around me really liked the movie. Um, so occasionally there's something out there, but it, but it's not often. What well, disappointed you by Gravity? Because uh, a lot of people have obviously praised the effects and right. praised the technique behind it, but I think some people have problems with the script and the dialogue. I think there's, there's right. been a slight growing backlash in the States. Yeah, I, 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 I felt that as well. Or, you know, I, I didn't think it was... It, 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 it was hyped to me, at least, as being really visually dazzling. I didn't find it visually dazzling. I thought he played the same beats over again visually. We saw the things coming at us, and then they went away, and they ducked them and all of that. You know, but but uh, it didn't grab... <clears throat> it didn't grab my heart. You know, and I, I, didn't, I didn't really get into it. I thought the okay. final 15 minutes of Captain Phillips with what Tom Hanks did, you know, was was a true revelation. I had no idea Tom Hanks could act like that, you know, and then... And if he wins an Oscar, that's what's going to win it. Yeah, it the last scene, I think. It grabbed me. The last of that yeah. sequence, it grabbed me and almost made me cry, you know, and I never expected it came out of nowhere.
So you're talking about the, the movies these days that are almost cartoons, and I guess you're talking about comic book movies and just yeah. the big blockbusters. Was that ever your forte? Were you ever comfortable when you were asked to? Were you ever asked to do script doctoring work on on projects like that? No, I I uh, I'm trying to think if I ever did any script doctor work at all. I the the I came in. I did a rewrite of Flashdance, which was written originally by Tom Hadley, and it was an overwhelming big rewrite. I didn't even like to do those very much, um, but I never did any doctor work. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I liked to play nerds when I was a kid, but I never did any <laughs> <laughs> Talking of Flashdance, weirdly, uh, Brian De Palma and David Cronenberg were both attached to that project at certain points. Well, I certainly I never heard that. The, uh, the heard uh, that. now there were there were there were two lives to that movie. Linda Obst, Peter Goober, and John Peters worked on one 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 version with uh, with Tom Edley's script. Um, the Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer took it over. Um, it, I never even saw Peters or Goober anywhere around the set, nor Linda, Linda Oaks. And I and I suspect that uh, that the the those guys being attached must have come in the in the first reign with Goober and Peters because because I never heard it. Okay. What was interesting about the movie is is the uh, the, the the studio had so little hope in the movie that they sold off thirty percent of their potential profit before it came out mm. um the uh but the it was a completely unexpected hit um that played forever you know and, and made a terrific amount of money but the the la times did a did a big article um about the film and and uh, listed all the various people that had taken part tom Headley, me the different producers linda Oaks, and all that and they put all these accounts together and all of us said, "No, no, no! It was a hit because of me. I made, I made it a hit. Right? Every eight of them. It was it was the greatest Rashomon in Hollywood history, right? Including I include myself. I felt like a complete asshole after I read it. You know." So, <laughs> you mentioned Don Simpson. I am a huge fan of Don Simpson's stories. Yes. My favorite might be the the one of him going back to his high school reunion and yeah, helicopter. yeah, it's like one of my favorite stories. <laughs> so, do, what, what is your best Don Simpson story? Well, Don and I were really good friends, and um, and we became great friends on on. Uh, on the flash dance and then became as continued to be good friends after that and the um i have two stories that are that i think are really revealing of don um we were in i'd broken up with my first wife and i was with naomi in hawaii and we were tabloid fodder the national Enquirer, and all this stuff so we were flying back from hawaii where we were hiding from the world and uh, and uh, suddenly in the mid-flight, this gnome-like little prison comes up, and I, and I admit that I'd had a significant amount to drink, and I wasn't in the best shape, and all that, you know. So this little prison comes up, and he sticks this imaginary microphone in my face, and he goes, "Mr. Asteras, Jimmy Lennon from the National Enquirer, are you here with your with your girlfriend?" And I look back, and it's Simpson. I said, Simpson, what are you doing here? <laughs> so, well, I'm in coach, you son of a bitch, but you're in first class, right? So, the, the other story was that that I that I love with Don is is he came from a, a very um, uh, strict uh, Christian missionary background. He grew up in Alaska. His parents were missionaries, and um, the and, and he was. He had this odd relationship with with his parents for obvious reasons, considering who Don was and what he'd done with his life yeah. and stuff. And, and he asked me over to his house, and and, uh, and and he had this beautiful house near the Bel Air Hotel. 
um, no longer in coach, certainly. You know, so and and, uh, <laughs> and he's taking me around the house, and there's some photographs that are in silver frames, and then I look closely, and it's a little Don with with people in missionary clothing, they put their arms around him, and I said, uh, oh, you didn't want to show me these. So what, what do you mean? So well, they're your parents, aren't they? And he looked at me and stopped and said. For a moment there, I forgot who I was dealing with, Esther Haas. <laughs> he was a grand character. He was smart as a whip. Um, I enjoyed every minute of my time with him, and I miss him to this day. Have you ever considered shocking everyone and doing an animated film, writing an animated film or a film about well, a Well, I, I did something that I thought would shock everyone. <clears throat> I did a, 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 a movie about the Our Lady of Guadalupe, who was a Catholic symbol. For much of the world, especially the Latino world, and the New Yorker, when they when they announced that I was writing this piece, the Yorker's headline was, "Esther Haas takes on 475-year-old virgin." <laughs> 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 Which I thought may have been an homage. I don't know, you know considering my age, it may have been an homage. You know. So, uh, so is there a pile of unproduced scripts? Yeah, there's some. There's some. I've did through the years. I did one, for example, on Otis Redding called "Blaze of Glory," and I I happened to be accidentally the last journalist to interview Otis in in, in Cleveland at a place called Leo's Casino before his plane crashed. And I always loved his music and had a fondness for him. And I did this piece that I liked a lot that that hasn't been made that wound up getting into a huge controversy with two of the real life characters depicted in the piece. Um, the uh, you know, there's the Maccabees, of course, which I which I love, is and I think one of my favorite things that I've written, which is trapped in Mel Gibson land for legal reasons. You know, because uh, because he came to me with the idea and said, "Let's do this." I can't either take it away or do another piece on the Maccabees without without having Mel use his his Midas-like fortune <laughs> to harass me in court and my children for the next fifty years. Is that indefinite? It seems to be, unless and I mean, it, it's a tough word to use in films because I did. T- I wrote the movie "Telling Lies in America." I wrote ten years as Magic Man before it was made and and sold. Right, so things can come out of the walls. In this particular case, my lawyer, who's very good and very smart, and and uh, and uh, certainly looking at the legal danger, has said to me. Um, you know, if he tries to get you, he'll have to come through me. At the same time, she said, to take it away, either yourself or to write another one on the same subject matter, um, you know, can, considering the animosity and the, and the true hatred that seems to be in the bottom of his soul, um, it's, you're going to be in a lot of trouble, so please don't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, I think there are like two or three others maybe that, that, uh, that, that I've done through the years. So it seems to me, it seems to me I mean not to get too much into the uh, the Mel Gibson because you've you always you always wrote a book, yes, of course. a book on that which is uh, on the Kindle store. Um uh it seems to me that uh, that relationship is irreparable that there's no way back Well look I mean I, I I will say what I what I've said before publicly in different places and, and that is that uh, Mel needs help the, there is some some core of of uh, of violent hatred at his, in his heart that that someone will have to try to deal with before there is a tragedy and somebody gets hurt because it's it's that kind of overwhelming threat of violence that's there. So I don't see any possibility of of, uh, of doing that. And mind you, I'm speaking about Hollywood, where 
you know, anything and everything can be solved or smoothed away or pretend it's not there. <laughs> but in this particular case, I don't think so. Well, there's so much sycophancy towards stars yes. in that town. Yes. You seem like somebody who's not afraid to just tell anyone to their face what you think. <laughs> Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm a Hungarian refugee from the west side of Cleveland, and when I went to school as a kid, there was this place called Nick's Diner down the street where old, older guys in leather jackets hung out. And it was in, I either had to had to somehow negotiate my way through or get the shit beat out of me. So, you know, that was a great <laughs> lesson for Hollywood, I think. I mean, yeah. a great formidable lesson. Well, it's interesting, for example, I mean, you, you had a... I don't know whether you personally had a clash with Sly Stallone on Fist. But yes. I know, for example, he didn't want to die in that movie, yes. which given that it was basically the Jimmy Hoffa story, Jimmy Hoffa story might, yes. have been, <laughs> might have been an interesting twist. Uh, but then obviously you worked with him on Burn Hollywood Burn. Yeah, so. and, uh, and Burn Hollywood Burn, and, and, uh, and before then, Sly was um, was desperate that I come in and do a rewrite on uh, a Staying Alive, the movie he did with Travolta. Oh. And I'll never forget, we had this meeting in this in this trailer, and, you know, and I said, John, they said, Sly, John was there. I said, Sly, come on, man, you, you, you screwed me on Fist. You're going to do it with the tree trunk now and staying alive? Is, is that the game? <laughs> you know, and he, and he really laughed. Um, yes, he died. In, in my mind, Sly made a mistake. He, he admitted to me afterwards that it was a mistake. He apologized. He said, and in my experience with him ever since then on, in different things, is that he's a terrific stand-up guy. Mm. You know, we all make mistakes, and we're all young. And, and in that particular situation, in the, he was in a very overwhelmingly heady place. He had become the biggest star in the world. Um, the, he suddenly made Brinks trucks filled with money. Um, he was his personal life was in shambles, um, and uh, he lost his balance, and as he said, and I think he's right. He did. I just wanted to ask about Basic Instincts and Showgirls. Obviously, they both got sequels, which were not particularly good. The Basic right. Instinct one is set here in London. Um, did you have ideas for what you would have done? For well, I said the, the the basic sequel. Um, the, 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 I saw that, and then the, the basic sequel. I what I would have done is uh, start from scratch. I thought it was a terrible story, and every beat of it would try to somehow hang on to the coattails of the one before it, mm. right? And and I and I frankly, and I don't mean this pejoratively, I wouldn't have made it with Sharon the sequel. I wouldn't have made. It. I did. I think Sharon could could have had a part in it, but I would not have made it with Sharon as as the lead. I haven't seen the the showgirls play that you're talking about. That evidently they mounted here. There's films as well. I think two two sort of director DVD sequels as well. I believe. Oh, I mean, yeah. you mean the the same movie with the DVDs with the director's cut? No, 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 different movies. Uh, follow-ups. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> Sorry to break it to you. No, 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 I wasn't aware <laughs> of that. that. That sounds like like news that my, my lawyer might be very interested in. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we'll make her day. You we'll know? Google so, this afterwards. Yeah, we'll make might her day. For a Are they English? No, 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 no American. No, American. Yeah. Really? So, um... But Joe, we, we have to let you go in a second here, but we can't let you go. I know you, I know you probably basic instinct is uh, something that's brought up again and again and again, but the interrogation scene in, the, in Basic Instinct is a Rashomon-type situation because we have Sharon Stone's version, <laughs> Paul Verhoeven's version, and your version. What's what's the truth? What's the truth behind uh, the sequence? Well, the, my version is that mm. the, the, the in the interrogation scene itself, in the script, I don't have that. I don't have that famous flash mm. where we had in the previous scene before he brings her downtown, um, and he's watching her. Um, we see her naked in that in that scene, and we see that she's not wearing any underwear. Mm. Right now, is Sharon, Sharon, what's Sharon's take exactly? That it never happened. Is that what her take? She was tricked. She was tricked. 
Boy, I, you know, Sharon's not a vessel person either. I don't think it's easy to trick her, you know. And uh, and I, knowing Paul, you know, I would I would think that that's not how he did it. I think he would say, Sharon, we do this now, okay? You know, I am the director, you not. So we do right now. You take them all off right away. Okay, let's go. And that sounds much more like Paul Verhoeven to me than anything else. <laughs> One day we'll get all three of you in the room together and we'll, we'll hash it out. I would welcome that. It might be really interesting. That yeah. we should film and probably that should be the real sequel. We'll see <laughs> Wayne Knight watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah precisely. precisely. Uh, Joe, it has been an absolute pleasure. Enjoy London while you're here. Uh, no, it's been a great pleasure with you guys. Yeah. To your pun. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Any plans? Are you going to do some touristy stuff? Well, I'm here. I'm here with, with Naomi and my and my 16-year-old son, John, and they have not been here in London, and John is a reader, and he likes, um, you know, fantasy literature a lot, so he's talking about places like the Tower of London and whatever else like that we can do. I am at, since they will have been at, at my mercy for two days with this round of stuff, and they've elected to come, then they will tell me what to do in the, after two days after that. Fantastic. Well, I hope you have a great time, Joe Esterhaus. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. It was my Thank pleasure. You. Thank great. you, guys. That man has the best voice I have ever heard in this booth. A rumbling growl. It's just amazing. I, I'm very, very envious of that voice. We need to get um, blessed in here one day. Uh, movie news time. What have you got? Um, well, I have a brief note about release dates um, before we do anything else. Oh, uh, I love release dates. Steady, Chris. I love release dates. I know you do. You know I love release dates. I know you do. Oh. Okay, so World of Warcraft, a.k.a. Warcraft, the Duncan Jones adaptation of the crazy video game told ya yeah you did everybody did you're completely right Uh, when it's predicted release date was December 18th 2015 a certain Star Wars episode 7 landed on the same release date and Um, we all said Star Wars colon episode 7 okay let me start that again a certain Star Wars colon episode 7 landed on the same date now director Duncan Jones was initially bullish said bring it on um, but has decided that, you know, uh, discretion is the better part of valour <laughs> and has moved to March of 2016 instead. Quite frankly, I think it's a wise decision on his part. It gives him more time to get it perfectly right and obser- avoids being overshadowed by another big sci-fi movie the same day. Well, I bet you that uh, the Yoda solo spin-off movie will land on that same date now. <laughs> and he has to keep pushing it back every three months and then another Star Wars movie comes along. Oh, I think he'll be okay. Be um, there were a few other uh, moves at the same time. The Seventh Son, which was originally due out this autumn, like in it fact, should be out now. Your set visit report on that movie yeah. ran in Empire, I think it was 1993. <laughs> I think it was. That was uh, due to be out now-ish. It's actually now out on February 6th, 2015. So add another. That's a fantasy film starring Jeff Bridges as a sorcerer who takes Ben Barnes as his apprentice to fight the evil witch Julianne Moore not her in real life her character (laughs) an evil witch Um, and um, then we have uh, Michael Mann's cyber thriller on January 16th 2015 another big film for that year and Jennifer Lopez's low budget thriller The Boy Next Door on January 23rd The Mummy meanwhile the reboot 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 of The Mummy will be April 2015 so look out for that one indeed thank you Helen for release date porn. If you know Stanley Kubrick's Life and Legacy, the film that he promised was going to be his greatest ever never got made, which was Napoleon. It was kiboshed by the release of um, the Battle of Waterloo movie, Waterloo, and went into turnaround. Interestingly, Steven Spielberg had stepped up to produce a sort of a re a re resurrection of the project, um, and it's going to be on HBO as a miniseries. Baz Luhrmann 
is the man that has been fingered for the role. Uh, so contain your excitement. Don't put that expression on your face, Chris. I mean it that way. <laughs> Probably not the I best choice of it. words. I didn't mean <laughs> it. And he's not. <laughs> Thank you for not finishing that sentence, Phil. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fingered for the role. Come on. It's like yeah, no. being fingered for the crime. Okay. Baz Luhrmann is the man that has been selected to Much potentially to to put this thing together, this this beast of an HBO miniseries. Now, there's so much archive material that Kubrick collected. He he had these index cards, and he got so method into this project. And this is a true story that on the set of A Clockwork Orange, he started eating like Napoleon. <laughs> he would have his pudding first and work backwards which is like Napoleon and every seven-year-old in the world. Um, and I don't know if Baz Luhrmann is going to be doing that or what he's going to be doing with it, but it's just, it's a strange coalescence of material and director, I would say. Mm. Unless John Leguizamo plays like Marshall Ney or Josephine. Yeah. Well, do we know what era Napoleon we're talking about here? Is this the young up-and-comer during the French Revolution or is this the Empereur, you know, or the dynamite era? 10 years later? <laughs> or Bill and Ted's Napoleon. <laughs> Waterloo water slides. It's gonna be if it's anything like the Kubrick version, it will be more of the the, the backstory. It was gonna be a candlelit kind of origin story okay. a little bit. And then it was gonna roll forward and it was gonna get to the Battle of Waterloo. He had fifty thousand extras lined up to do this thing. Wow. Which is about twenty thousand more than turned up on the actual battle. Did he and tell them to stand down or are they still awaiting it? They're the still somewhere? they're still in Belgium. Some of them are getting old. Uh, so Baz has uh, has his he's got a you know it's a big job and it's complicated by the fact that like Kubrick there's another there's another Napoleon out there. <gasps> da, da, da. Rupert Sanders has got one going on for Warner Brothers and uh, it's going to be interesting to see what what that means. But this is HBO, so you know anything's possible. I'm really excited. This is a, a great opportunity for short actors to get a really plum role or tall actors in very big holes. That's also a possibility, I guess, yeah. I wonder who Baz Luhrmann is going to finger for those roles. I think they should uh, do what Charlie Chaplin originally had planned when he became obsessed, obsessed with Napoleon and started dressing up as Napoleon and walking around as Napoleon. Uh, he eventually came up with a script, which, of course, wasn't made in the talkie era. And unfortunately, Charlie Chaplin, comedy god, the jokes weren't so hot uh, when it came to actually saying them out loud and it didn't get made but his idea was that he's imprisoned in Elba but there's a replacement that comes along a looky-likey comes along and gets swapped out for Napoleon Napoleon escapes and becomes a painter uh, like a kind of a street-side painter in Paris the uh, looky-likey dies as Napoleon mm. and then the real Napoleon watches his funeral from, you know, outside Montmartre and goes above oh well uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, and some apologies to all French terrible listeners. jokes come out so yeah do do look that up it's an interesting story to what Charlie Chaplin wanted to do there fun fact Napoleon's actually buried in a tomb below ground level so if you stand on the floor in the Invalides and, and, and look at the tomb you have to bow is that right? And that was mandated in so as well would he, be, would he have been one of the zombies in World War, World War Z um, if they got to the catacombs uh, he's actually buried inside 12 coffins. It's an ancient Egyptian funeral so rite. Not. So I think even if he were a zombified, he would have trouble getting out of them all. The outer one is, is enormous and made of marble. So I think that would probably cause some problems. Mm. Uh, this all reminds me, whatever happened to that film that they were going to make about Napoleon on St. Helena with, I think, Scarlett Johansson as the girl who'd looked after him in prison? Do you remember that was cast a few years ago and just never quite materialised? Clearly never happened. I guess not. Oh, well. Biff. We wish Baz all the best. It must be difficult to direct while being fingered. 
My news story is very, very quick. Uh, Sony, uh, who of course own the rights to Spider-Man, and as far as I'm aware, no other Marvel properties are keen to keep the uh, Spidey gravy train going. Uh, so Amazing Spider-Man 2 is coming out next year, but they want to do other Spider-Man universe uh, properties. Uh, they want to take other Spider-Man properties and turn them into films. So people are suggesting Venom, and people are suggesting, obviously, Aunt May, the uh, the early years. Chris is obviously not taking the joke well and looks genuinely distraught. I'm, I'm genuinely... Even though I know you're joking, but that's just the worst idea in the history of bad <laughs> ideas. The other news is that J.R.R. Tolkien will be getting a biopic, not with Warners uh, or with uh, the Peter Jackson team, but in fact with Fox Searchlight. Uh, so they are looking to tell the story of his experiences both uh, at university and in the Great War and uh, obviously the process of writing both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Uh, people are suggesting uh, you know, titles, uh, Look Who's Talking uh, or Tolkien uh, is one, uh, which somebody, i got to credit him because it was their joke on the forum, Funkel, F-U-N-K-E-L. Thank you for suggesting Look Who's Talking. I've got two news stories. That's a rarity. Wow. Friday the 13th. Yeah. It's not, it's the 29th. But a freshly rebooted and remasked and remacheted Friday the 13th will be out on, <laughs> get this, Friday the 13th what? of March 2015. Yes, it's landed just a week after Warcraft. Is that right? Uh, no, it's 16, 16, 16. Oh, my release date born. Um, uh, it's going to come out in 2015. It's, it's Jason Furhees will go toe to toe with all those movies coming out in 2015. Uh, which is uh, bold and brave, given that the last one was rubbish and didn't do that well. Uh, I would just say, I'm, I know you guys aren't that big horror fans compared, to, but I would say that they should really reboot this one and do it with Pamela Voorhees' mother and not Jason Voorhees. Maybe they will. Go. Maybe they will. If you're listening to me, people who are doing that. And also, I guess this is horror-related. Uh, they've been trying to make a movie of The Stand, Stephen King's magnum opus, for years. Although The Dark Tower is really his magnum opus. But this massive, fantastic, ap- uh, apocalyptic novel. If you haven't read it, do check it out. And Paul Greengrass is reportedly in talks to direct that, that for Warner Brothers. amazing. Yeah, that's... that's but they can't I call don't it think it will happen, but I, d- I think it would be amazing. We have bigger, 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 bigger news than all of that, of course. Which is? The Empire magazine. Hooray! Is coming to you if you go and buy it from newsagents or other shops that sell it. Or you may have already bought it or it may have already winged its way to you if you're a subscriber. Came out yesterday. So Transformers Age of Extinction is on the cover. Inside we have the full report from the Detroit and Hong Kong sets of the film uh, so that's worth looking out for you can hear from the new cast members there none of this Shia LaBeouf nonsense we also have a massive Oscar report which forms the kind of the backbone of the rest of the issue so if you're worried that you know Transformers is, is too explodey for you rest assured there's some serious performance porn in there as well there's We've some got, acting explosions there's some that sounds wrong but yes let's go with that so we've got uh, 12 Years a Slave we've got Gravity uh, Labour Day The Wolf of Wall Street The Secret Life of Walter Mitty The Book Thief All is Lost uh, Spike Jones is Her The Coen Brothers talking about Inside Lewin Davis and much much more and that's an absolutely fantastic f- section as well as talking to the sort of the likely actor nominees people like Kate Blanchett Bruce Dern etc and in case that's a bit too serious but you still don't want Explodey then we have the cast uh, of Anchorman 
talking about their comedy. Yes, we do. I flew to Los Angeles when I wasn't hosting it the other week. Was that the on the wings of love, Chris? It, it, no, it was on an airplane, Helen. Oh, okay. Are you sure it wasn't a giant uh, glittery rainbow? No, guys, it, you can't travel from London to LA on a wings of love or a giant glittery rainbow. It's just not feasible. I, I flew British Airways, obviously. Hello. To, to Pleasure Town. Um, no, to Los Angeles. Have you not been listening to a word I said? Anyway, so I, I, I sat down with uh, Will Ferrell, Steve Carell, Dave Keckner, and Paul Rudd for a... Uh, it's funny, but also they're quite reflective as comedians when they're when they're not uh, in uh, Anchorman character, and it's a very interesting kind of history of their relationship together and uh, and Anchorman and a little bit of Anchorman too there as well. Also, um, the slate section this month is our review of the year. It's got lots of infographics, lots of fun stuff in there, lots of funny little factoids, and, and it has all of Team Empire's top tens of the year, provisional top tens, of course, because we hadn't seen certain movies before we made our top 10 choices but do go and check those out and then you can yell and scream at us and, and call us idiots and in the on location section uh, we have a world exclusive set report from the set of Darren Aronofsky's Noah with Russell Crowe and Darren Aronofsky we also have Blackwood and Hyena and a whole host of other cracking set visits in there as well so there you go that's the movie news uh, Empire Magazine is available in print and on the iPad £3.99 from all good and evil news agents go and pick it up now please uh, second interview time now from his explosive debut in Tigerland Colin Farrell has been one of the most charismatic actors around working with a who's who of great directors Spielberg Stone Mann Malick Allen Gilliam Weir then Wiseman the Irish actor can be seen this week in John Lee Hancock's Saving Mr. Banks as the alcoholic father of Emma Thompson's P.L. Travers. And when he was in town this week, we sent Helen and in a change to our advertised lineup from last week's podcast, Phil, to talk to him. Because I was going to talk to him as well, but we realised that three Irish people in the room would need some titles. And some titles don't work in podcasts, isn't that right, Phil? I'm Irish. You're not Irish. You're Romanian. I'm a bit Irish. Romanian-English. 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 <laughs> Here's the Colin Farrell interview. Enjoy it. I I met her. I interviewed her for that, and I asked her if I thought if she thought that she she'd be okay. Which I think is a naive question in retrospect. If you if her character might might some find some way back. Oh, are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, Kate was like, Well, it is Blanche Dubois, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, the whole thing is streetcar, even down to the pull-out bed and, and yeah, they kind of like slightly distance themselves from that a little bit. You know, the whole tiny bit. Did they really? A little bit. Yeah, they were I'm like, surprised. yeah, it's it's got that, but it's not. Supposed her to ex be. is Polish. Yeah, well, I hadn't thought uh, of that. That's right. Yeah, you know the one really sweet sister and the other sister who talks of this grand life of opulence and, and yeah. yeah, you're probably right. Completely. And and then and then the guy Carl Malden is. Um, oh yeah, Carl Malden is Peter. Yeah. Uh, you should have done the interview, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I just read that on the internet. No, have, I, you, played, I, it, have you played Stanley Kowalski? No, no, I did. I played. I, I played Tom and um, Last Menagerie only in drama school. Last Menagerie is one of my favorite plays. But it's, yeah, the, the streetcar is a tricky one. Yeah. Right, we should probably f- officially oh. start. Uh, <laughs> So, welcome to the Empire Podcast, Colin Farrell. Uh, so, we're here, I guess, to talk about saving Mr. Banks or whatever else occurs to must. us, really, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
<laughs> so how did you get involved in this in the first place? Uh, Just start with the obvious question. I got sent an email by my agent and script to follow and a little note saying that there was a bit of a hurry on it. <laughs> it was all happening very fast and I read it and then I emailed them at two o'clock in the morning just making sure it was an offer because um, <laughs> I wanted to be I wanted to contain myself I was very excited but it was one of the most if not the most moving and engaging emotionally engaging script mm. that I've read I had read scripts that were more kind of intellectually challenging or or obscure um, but this felt like it felt like old fashioned filmmaking it felt um, almost conventional and I don't mean that as a bad thing I mean to, to tell a story in a conventional way and have it as engaging as Kelly Marcel's script is, is is an impressive feat so I just wanted to be I wanted to be part of it yeah, yeah. I just wondered just to jump in yeah. what that first email mm. kind of looks like you need agent calls he's like Colin got this great script dear Colin like he's known me 15 years and he's so jaded and so impersonal it's still dear Colin and it ends with look forward to your thoughts so oh, that, seriously yeah 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 was, so um, well that's fine uh, and it was just yeah this is a script that Disney are producing with them John Lee Hancock set to direct and uh, please take a look at the role of mm, this is moving fairly fast so I suggest you get on as soon as you can looking mm. forward to your thoughts Josh Lieberman <laughs> is he one of those people who has like his last line in the signature so looking forward to hearing your thoughts not automatically even. no they don't either. care they're not even pretending <laughs> no they're kisses not even pretending that there's any personal involvement in most of the correspondence yeah, uh, yeah. you play Harsh. you play obviously a, a real life person in Travis Goff mm. and you've played real life people before obviously and I was yeah. thinking about um John Smith in The New World oh, right. and you did an enormous amount of research about John Smith yeah. you read a lot of books and mm-hmm. did, what was the kind of greatest extreme you went to to find out about this man? Nada, nothing I mean it, it was very hard to there's scant information out there regarding uh, Robert Jarvis Goff and his life just his date of birth and, and when he died and bits and pieces like he he had claimed to have spent some time in Ireland some summers in Ireland and but in fact he was born in London and he travelled straight from there I can't even say for a fact that he wasn't in Ireland, but he certainly didn't have uh, the amount of Irish influence based on his experiences in his life, as he said he did, I don't believe. But he was in love with, supposedly, purportedly, he was in love with Celtic mythology, and he was a great man for getting drunk and singing limericks, and was a huge fan of W.B. Yeats's poetry, and, and that was literally it. I think it was it was the most um, constructed of the characters in the film by way of Kelly Marcel's imagination than all the other characters. I mean, Don DeGrady and the Sherman brothers and obviously Walt Disney and P.L. Travers, there was quite a bit of information on, but uh, Travers Goff, she kind of worked backwards from where P.L. Travers ended up and the few little facts she could find about her father and then worked backwards and dramatised it. So I just went, I think more than any of the other actors, I, I just went off off the page because I had no choice. Wow. Gotcha. It sounds like what you've described sounds like an Irish person anyway. You know, if, if he if he if those were his interests, if those were what he liked yeah. and was into, that's like the, the stereotypical vision. Well, unfortunately, of I don't anyway. know anyone that that's into Celtic mythology. Or none of my mates could even spell Yeats. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, and and certainly wouldn't be able to quote any of his poetry. So, you know, but the you know, we like the Brits like to have a drink, and sometimes it can get out of hand. Yeah. And, and he, he's somebody that was. Fairly, I, I believe. He, I mean, he died an early death. He died when P.L. Travers was was not P.L. Travers when she was Helen Goff, uh, about seven years of age. Yeah. From I, th- I think I don't even know what exactly. It's, it was hard to whether it was from. I think it was a lot of things compounded yeah. by alcoholism. A little bit like not to talk about the New World too much, but a little bit like the New World. It's kind of a film of two halves in a sense, right. um, not chronologically, but yes. there's two stories run parallel. Yes, and I guess you didn't really share any screen time with with Emma Thompson or Tom Hanks. No. 
and aside from reading the script, I wonder what how do you know what's happening over there? Like, yeah. and when no. you see the film, you're like, oh, all right, yeah, okay, no, that's it was what cool, man. It was really cool. Look, the you know the best part, the the most rewarding part for me of seeing any of the films that I've done are the moments that are that I'm not in, <laughs> and, and the moments take that whatever way you want it. But all even among other things, but by virtue of me not being privy to how they were framed and how they were shot and the, the you know, the music therein. Um, so when I saw the whole film, I was really caught up on it. Not so much my stuff, of course, and I'm a distraction to myself, but for the rest of the story, which is, you know, 65 or 70% of the story, I was so, so caught up on it because they, they shot our stuff in chronological order at the start of the film. So they blocked out two and a half weeks at the beginning of the shoot and we went up to a a ranch called Big Sky Ranch about an hour and a half drive north of Los Angeles and found this scorched earth plot of land and they built this beautiful period wooden house on top of this bluff and we had a horse and six chickens and me and Ruth Wilson <laughs> and three kids and it was it was a dream it really felt like shooting this complete movie and a completely entire, entirely different um, film from the one that, that came later a bit Bally Kiss Angel again yeah 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 you know, <laughs> Razor yeah Razor the way cut throat Razor what, do you remember the first Disney film you saw as a kid? Because I know that you were very... Yeah, The Jungle Book. Oh, The Jungle Book. Where was that? I never saw Mary Poppins when I was a kid. I was more, I was too busy getting off on Willy Wonka. That sounds weird. Um, you know what I mean, though. I was more of a Willy Wonka man than I was a Mary Poppins Getting sweaty girl. with the Oompa A bit like that, yeah. More into, more into um, everlasting gobstoppers and fizzy lifting drinks than spoonfuls of sugar. Yeah. Why have spoonfuls when you can have vats? Indeed, that's yeah. what I say. At least that's what the mini bar thought I said last night at five a.m. when I woke up and emptied it. Um, but yeah, the Jungle Book was the first one, and I grew up watching all Disney's cartoons, but but live action not so much. What was the first animation that you showed your kids? What was the most watched in the Farrow? Um, the most watched by Henry for the longest time um, was into Ice Age for the longest, longest time, and. James, James was into Mamma Mia. I know that's not an animated <laughs> film. And, and I, kind of is. It's very animated. It's quite though. animated. You're right. It is quite animated. Um, but I'll go with those two. I have a slightly left field question, which is that P.O. Travers, Emma Thompson's character, has a real problem with a lot of the, the issues, a lot of the things that Walt Disney wants to bring to this yeah. story. But animated penguins yeah, are yeah. a real bugbear. And I wondered if you have any like, things that really bug you in movies. Because this is something we talk about quite a lot. Um, right. People never saying goodbye at the end of any phone call, for oh, instance. Okay. That kind of thing. I'm just going to stay on the phone call thing. When somebody hangs up and the person goes, hello, 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 and they do that, and oh, they yeah. hang up, and they still go, hello. It's just, there's so many reasons why that's impossible and ridiculous. Apart from the fact you can hear, <laughs> coming out of the phone. So that kind of thing could be a little bit of a pet peeve. Cars exploding for no reason. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's fun. Those but... in American films, when a car comes off the freeway, and they always place those water barrels. Yes. First, I don't know why water barrels are on the side of every exit in a freeway. Yeah. I've been living there ten years. I've never seen them myself, but they're always. And the there. person that hits them always ends up in like life condi- life threatening condition in hospital anyway. Yes. So you're like, why bother? Water barrels. Yeah, it's really not What's working. The use of that? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking. We've been talking about um, movie deaths, great movie deaths, and and uh, Brendan Gleeson's in. In Bruges. It's extraordinary. It's I mentioned extraordinary that well. I mean, he does something with his eyes in that thing where his eyes go up, red, down, and then just settle. It's the, what was that like to shoot in the middle of the Bruges? Weirdest, weirdest thing. Um, bits oh, of yeah, bits of, yeah, it was prosthetic. Gross. Yeah, it's cool. You're just going, Madonna, you're just twisted, like literally. <laughs> Because there's a there's a moment when you step off into it for Brendan and it, then you don't be joking about anything anymore because he's work to do and stuff. But before all that, when you 
arrive on the set and, and you're having a look and even Brennan was like Jesus <laughs> <laughs> ah, you're ah, you're a sick man you're a sick man which he kind of is, which he kind of is. but uh, he didn't get a doggy bag afterwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no wrap gift like you get back your hands and your feet um, yeah it was fairly it was fairly it was one of the more gnarly things I've seen through the years <laughs> it really was it was just the stump of a body and they dug a hole in the ground for Brennan it was, it was bizarre <laughs> yeah it's one of my I've got to say it's one of my favourite films in Bruges and it's yeah. it, the dialogue is so brilliant but it's kind of difficult it almost defies it's not a quotable film right 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 it's kind right. of hard to quote some well, of it's very stuff. on PC yeah, as well, well you got to be well. careful of the company you're quoting it in yeah, yeah have you yeah, been yeah. back to back to Belgium I haven't no, no I haven't but I've met people that have that have gone there because of the film kind of or used the film as a launch point into arriving at the place and they always go wow we loved it what an amazing place and, and, I, and I said how long were you there and they're like three days and I said great <laughs> do eight weeks in the winter and get back to me and no it's, that's a, that's a strange and magical place it really actually is it really is and the whole the whole film was came from Martin finding himself there and him experiencing this fracture in himself where part of him was going wow this is wonderful and quaint and mysterious and I love it and the other part of him was going it's boring there's nothing yeah. to do there's just beer what the hell <laughs> and so he kind of you know, fractured himself and created two characters based on both sides of his abnormal brain it turned out <laughs> it turned out nicely have you ever shot anywhere that you wanted to go back to Morocco in Vacances Morocco. Oh, really Morocco yeah I haven't been back since Alexander but it's one place through the years that um you know, usually I find when you're on location and you you do two or three months somewhere, it, you reach a stage where you're ready to either go, I should live here, or I should go home. This is unnatural. <laughs> and and Morocco, I never got never got to that stage. And I was there for four and a half months, and I just loved it. I just loved it. I was wearing maybe it was something to do with being able to wear a jalaba, you know, traditional Moroccan dress, literally a dress, you know, and that was kind of was kind of cool. It stopped being kinky really fast and just became the norm. Um, but I loved, I loved Morocco. Yeah, I read that you haven't seen the the final cut of uh, of Alexander of Oliver's Which what, one? fifth attempt or something. Well, he it? just did a fifth, I right. believe. And and I, I I've read he sent me some clippings of people that said that it was it was really good and made sense. And you know he was rushed like majorly. He nearly should have had a year and a half at least mm. to cut it together to do the effect, all the footage that he'd gotten. And sometimes we were running it in eight, nine cameras. And but it was such a huge story, and he'd wanted to make it since he was eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and studying um, studying history in in college. So it was it was too big for him. It was too big for everyone. But yeah, I haven't seen it. I don't know that I'll. I don't know that I need to. Maybe I should for Oliver have a look at it. But I'm too. I would have very little perspective on that now. Distracted by yourself again. Distracted by myself, distracted by my hair. <laughs> I'm still traumatised by you know, the idea that you can do a, a film that had a budget of $140 million and have like peroxide hair clips falling out. And the take was just, <laughs> I still never get over it. Some but, people uh, shouldn't be blonde. Well, just, get, it's just you know, anytime you give a target that's too easy is, you know, it's, it, let them tackle the themes. Let them tackle the expression of of certain certain elements of the story through performance. Let them tackle performance. But but to give like my roots weren't done. It was. I mean, I wish I had my shit together more because I would have been on top of certain things yeah. that that would have negated the ease with which people could target the film. Mm. And and uh, but maybe I'll see the fifth version so I can call up Oliver and say to him you did it <laughs> you cracked it man after all these years but how how obsessed is Oliver and how wonderful is his yeah. drive and his passion for the material that you know 10 years later he's in an editing suite you know cutting it together he's brilliant he doesn't give up on anything no I love him I love him he's, a, he's incredible is there a better version of Miami Vice out there somewhere 
I don't know, man. I don't, you'd have to ask Michael Mann about that. You'd have to. Mm. Couldn't tell you. Did it come out like you'd expected it to in terms of the tone of the thing? It has a real heavy heaviness to it. It's a he- it has a heaviness to it. Mm, I was, I mean, I've spoken before about being underwhelmed by it. I just, I thought that, um, I just, I think that it's, if if a filmmaker is incredibly technically minded, that it can be easy to get into a rut of uh, style over substance, I think. Mm. I think you can fall in love with technology and I think you can fall in love with framing and, and composition and camera moves. And sometimes that can, I think then you have both a perfect marriage of both things in, in, in the work of Paul Thomas Anderson Yeah, is, you know, perfect marriage of both technical ability and craft and, and emotional intellectual understanding of human beings and the possibilities of film. Yeah. There's a bit where you go on a date in a speedboat to like was, Cuba. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Paul I Thomas had, Anderson doesn't have that. I had some. No, he doesn't. I had some fun on it. I, I already wanted to ask you about the New World because I've mentioned it twice already. But I do really, genuinely love that film. Um, I think it's a real masterpiece, and people probably, you know, it doesn't get as much chat I, in the Malick canon as it yeah. No, should. I know it, it's it's quite down there in the in the Malick canon. I mean, there's not that many films to to choose from, but I know it is, and it's one of the few films that I've been part of that I actually really. That I wasn't a distraction. I, the film is so beautiful, and the aesthetic of it is so beautiful. And there's such a there's such a a um, kind of overwhelming poetry to it um, that my presence in it doesn't ruin it for me. I really, I actually love that film as well. Yeah, I really do. I, I really do. I think it's beautiful. I think it's. I want to say it's an important film, but I think from that first, I mean, I think the significance of that first footprint landing on the on the shoreline, and the death knell for native civilization that 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 very kind of ill-fortuned meeting and mm. coming together of cultures was you know i think it's really i think it's a much more important film than people realize it's not just like a pretty a pretty story about a love between a man and pocahontas and john smith it's it's really about the founding of a nation and about the dream that still struggles to realize itself every day in america yeah absolutely 100 percent agree with that and and uh chivu Lubitsky. The cinematographer oh, yeah, as well, he's genius. Yeah, I mean, Matt, gravity and yeah, yeah, yeah. Maddie, he's he's a genius. Yeah, Chivo is unbelievable, unbelievable. He's done the last three or four films with Terry, hasn't he? Um, I think that's correct. Although I would need to check. I would I need to check. Right so I can't remember who did uh, To the Wonder. I think it was him. I think he did as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he did. I remember seeing quotes from him To the Wonder. Yeah. Do, do you think Malik does screen tests for his cinematographers just? Getting them to shoot grass and then <laughs> and see how it looks. Yeah, you know? it's a little bit like that. He's he's. He's genuinely, he sees in, I think, human beings what he sees in nature, and he sees in nature what he sees in human beings, meaning, you know, he sees, he sees uh, a, an emotional significance or relevance between every blade of grass responding to each other and responding mm-hmm. to the wind that he sees in human beings responding to each other and ourselves and our own inner voices, and he sees the same vice versa. I mean, he really does. He, he looks at one as the extension of another and sees no dividing line. I mean, I would have been doing, on the New World, I remember doing... Uh, monologue once or, or just speaking once I mean, and he had the camera on his shoulder because he operated quite often he used to love when he'd operate and, and all of a sudden he heard a bird behind him and he went oh gosh is that an osprey and and he turned the camera around and all he went and I was just like that's kind of genius <laughs> you know you don't want to you wouldn't want to have too fragile an ego but um, but he's so just he's so present in the moment and he's so by, bewitched by by creation which is how um how his beautiful film with with Brad and Jessica came to being. I mean, he's so yeah. bewitched by creation, you know. And and I had read a treatment for that years ago, and so beautiful because he doesn't he doesn't 
he doesn't proselytize, but at the same time, he does seem to state a belief that he doesn't he doesn't uh, feel that the belief in God negates the importance of science, or the belief in science negates the possibility that God exists. And and so there's a there's something lovely about that that it's not strident because you know you have a strident religious movement and you have a strident atheistic movement now as well. And I think anything in its stridency is not necessarily a, a, a great thing. You know, mm. Richard Gere tells this great story about how. He was getting some direction from Terry Malick on Days of Heaven and, and he said, what do you want me to do in this scene? And he just pointed, he said, look over there and he looked at this, this curtain blowing in the wind. He said, do that. That's what I want. <laughs> and he's like, okay. <laughs> did you That's have brilliant. Any, did you have any, any similar? No. Uh, Terry, no, not really. Just just that one. And oh, I had a good one with Woody Allen once. And I know good at remembering things usually. So with Woody Allen, we did a take when I was working with you and we did a scene in Cassandra's Dream and... and um, did a take and what he went got it let's move on and, 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 I, and I said because it was literally one take I said is there can I can I get another one and he went if you think you can do it better and I went no you're right <laughs> cool, too much pressure move on <laughs> like if you think you can do it better <laughs> I've got to ask a couple of other things coming up we've got a New York Winter's Tale early next year which yeah. I think is how it's going in this country so that yeah. sounds like a, a crazy time non-specific kind of a story yeah, I don't know what yeah I mean the script was fairly specific but I, I saw the trailers now you wouldn't know what the hell's going on but um, but I don't know what it is I haven't seen it yet I've done I've done some ADR for it but I haven't seen the film um, but it was a beautiful script incredibly romantic script an incredibly sweet script um, and Akiva's directing debut and got to work with Jessica who's wonderful did a little bit with Russell not much. William Hurt. It's good. It's fun. It's fun. Even Marie Saint. Yeah, it's kind of. That's some, pretty cool. Yeah, I did some, I'm spoiled, man. I had some fun <laughs> on that as well. So I'll see what the, I don't know what the film is, but I, I might try and see it in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And uh, Solace. Is that right? Solace. Yeah, did yeah. a few. Did a few days on that. Okay. Yeah. So not the lead, then. I'm guessing. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did. Uh, I did about four or five days, and I had three or four scenes, all of them with, with um, Tony Hawkins. Sir Anthony, and uh, and it was a blast. It was a blast working with him. Man, I had such fun working with him. He's yeah. I mean, send him an email at three in the morning, and bling, email comes back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about sending an email about certain the scene and ideas, and then bling, back he comes. Like wow, wow, he's, he's worse than me. <laughs> did he yeah. t- did he sit on on set an anecdote? Because we had Tom Hiddleston talking about Thor, and he said just you'd yeah, get him great off. stories, yeah. <clears throat> great stories, and love sharing them. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And told me a great story about meeting Burton for the first time in Wales when he was a kid, and he was he was the baker. Tony Hopkins was the baker's son, and Burton Burton was the was the coal miner's son, and and but then years later, coming full circle, like. 15 or 20 years later I think he was 8 or 9 when he met Burton this one time called up to his house and then something like 20 years later when he was in the National Theatre and Burton came backstage and they hadn't met since and he, Anthony had no idea if Burton would remember him and he came in and lit a cigarette Burton and he, did, he said he didn't even look at me but he just went so the uh, the baker's son huh <laughs> wow yeah Done on, and then he went done alright haven't we I kind of got <laughs> choked up when he told me that it was yeah I kind of got choked up when he told me that because he's Anthony's Tony's a really emotional fellas. <laughs> he really is. Like if you see him, he's very emotional. He's really happy and he's smiling. Tears come to us. I had a blast working on Salas. I have no idea what the film is. But I don't know. <laughs> and then just a bit of rumor control. You're rumored for Warcraft. 
Don't know what's happening with that. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea. All I, I read the script and, and I don't know if they're going ahead with it or what stage it's at, but um, the script is wonderful. And Duncan Jones is, Duncan Jones is mm, a fine, fine director. He's yeah. such, a, such a good director. I think he'll kill it with whoever's in it. Would you be an elf or a dragon? <laughs> I don't really, I don't know Warcraft that well. Me neither. <laughs> neither. He was very, people are very passionate about it. Yes, they are. You have to be careful of that. Yeah. Veiled warnings from like Elf Master One at yeah. three in the morning. That's <laughs> yeah, my exactly. agent again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we need to let you go shortly. But just before we do, a couple of things that we call IMD Bunker. It's kind of you know, there's the, the rumor stuff that you get yeah, on your yeah, IMDb yeah. page, um, and we like to just I put like that out there. Done with that. I like yeah. how you've added an unker onto the end of IMDb. <laughs> it's clever, right? Yeah, it doesn't yeah, really yeah. work because yeah, yeah, there's yeah. too many bees. But yeah. anyway, there you go. Um, you're good friends with Jeremy Renner. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, That's I haven't correct. seen him. You probably got other good friends, though. No, no, no. Fine. I haven't. I haven't seen Jeremy. There was when we were working together. We hung out loads, and then I haven't. I haven't seen busy as hell. I haven't seen him in the longest time. If I see him now, there'll be a big, sincere man hug between the two of us. But I don't know. Yeah. Good stuff. Do you think he got enough to do in the Avengers? Do I think he got enough to do in the mm. Avengers? I'm sure he would have liked to have done more. But it's a pretty big storyline. You're trying to take care of all those characters. I don't know. That's true. We were going to ask as well about Bullseye. We were discussing this the other day. We didn't actually come up with a question. We were just like, oh, we should talk about Bullseye. Go yeah. for it. Well, no, just we generally. No question, no question. Bullseye! Um, Hooray, the, the, okay. only, the line, you made me miss, mm. was that a tribute to uh, an, an American werewolf in London? When is that an American werewolf in London? When uh, the guy's playing darts in the pub. Oh, yeah. God, remember the Alamo. Um, God, I love that film. <laughs> God, that's such a good film. Such a tonally genius genius film uh, I don't know no, it wasn't no it wasn't yes it was that was my idea <laughs> <laughs> amazing brilliant work thank you very much <laughs> okay I got one you have a few tattoos I know did you ever think about getting a bullseye tattoo never there you go okay that's it you heard it here last <laughs> do you want to do a quick a couple more debunkers and then we've got to wrap up oh do we well if you have another one or two. I do have another one actually okay. this one is I <clears throat> feel a kinship with it because I gave up smoking you gave up smoking it says that you get you wrote a letter Two cigarettes. I did. To say goodbye. I did. Did they write back? Uh, yes. Because they uh, never appeared <laughs> anywhere near me or they weren't in my fingers. And yeah. They wrote back in silence and uh, in action. So it was okay. exactly the kind of response I was looking for. No, I wrote a letter just, yeah, just, I, I, what I did was I set myself up uh, by making the whole thing is, because you know, I have friends that gave up smoking and they smoke cigarettes and they're like, I think I'll give up tomorrow and they just, you know, they finished their life. But I literally spent the whole day with a box of cigarettes and each single puff I took I was like okay I'm getting closer to the end and closer to the end so by the time I came to the last smoke it was about quarter to twelve that night before my birthday and I had written a letter to tobacco thanking it for its presence in my life and for being such a profound part of so many aspects and being there through good moods and bad moods and high times and no times and, and then I got a loaded tobacco and I put it on top of the letter I sprayed it with paraffin oil put it all in the frying pan lit it sent it off in the atmosphere and I didn't have a smoke for two years wow I I, but then I started having a couple of sneaky things it's so okay there might be another letter in the post in the future. <laughs> <laughs> you can text this time maybe <laughs> Anyway, um, all right. Well, we better wrap it up. Okay. But thank you very, very much. Save Mr. Banks out this weekend. Everybody, go see it. Cheers. All the best. But you, Emon. What about Jen? What about you, there, Colin Farrell? Right. Let's move on now to the reviews section. Uh, let's start with Colin Farrell's uh, turn in Saving Mr. Banks, which is a story of how Walt Disney. I've gone really Northern Irish all of a sudden. What's happened? Walt Disney, played by Tom Hanks, persuaded P. L. Travers, played by Emma Thompson, to let him turn her beloved creation, Mary Poppins, into a major motion picture. Thoughts on this one is this a dark horse or a front runner gate crash in the Oscar race I think so 
I think so. First thing to point out about this movie is that it is a Walt Disney film which stars Walt Disney. So do not, if you've read James Elroy's Ellie Confidential, um, you'll know that there is another side to Walt Disney that is probably not explored by Tom Hanks' character in quite that same level of scurrilous, salacious detail. The smoking thing people have made made hay with, you know, does he smoke enough? He's a chain smoker in real life, Walt Disney. This film obviously sanitizes the story a little bit, so let's just start with pointing that out. But it is, for all that, really lovely, lovely piece of uh, piece of cinema. And I'll tell you why. Because, first and foremost, I would say Emma Thompson, MVP by Miles. She plays P.L. Travers, the writer of Mary Poppins. And it's a story about her creative vision for this thing and how she doesn't want to relinquish it to who she sees as the American Americanized kind of popcorn animator. She hates animation. She hates animated <laughs> animated penguins. So it's a story. It's basically a, a wrestling match between between Tom Hanks as Walt Disney, who's been coveting the rights to make this film for two decades, and P.L. Travers, who doesn't have a lot of money left and her lifestyle is in jeopardy, but still can't bear to relinquish control of this and the reason for that is the second part of the story which is the Colin Farrell bit her father her childhood in Australia her upbringing and how personal it all is to her and the film kind of is two two tacks I thought and I don't know if you guys agree that the that the Disney element works slightly better than the Australian element. I thought Colin Farrell was very good um, the cast Ruth Wilson in the Australian section were, were, were uniformly excellent but it was a little played out a little little lengthily for me I don't think it needed quite as much by way of flashbacks yeah I think I think they're heavy handed with the flashbacks and I mean the thing is Emma Thompson gets so much across with so little that you actually need very very little of the flashbacks mm. to, to get where she's coming from and get why this matters to her and I think there's a little bit of a tendency to to hammer us with information that mm. we're kind of we're there already we're you know we've got it we know what, where she's coming from it's really interesting. We were talking about The Counselor a couple of weeks ago, and there's a film where you are literally in, in media res and it has no interest in telling you what happened before or putting these things into context. And this film is kind of the opposite. It wants to put every single thing into context, give you the backstory of every element, including the reason why she doesn't like pears. Um, that level of minutia is funny and great to an extent, but I think when it's hammered, like you say, is a good word for it. It's a little over the top. But what's great about this film is the quiet moments, I think, the interaction between... A, between uh, Emma Thompson and Hanks and especially the Sherman brothers yeah. um, BJ Novak and Jason Schwartzman are both really fantastic Paul Giamatti is great and Bradley Whitford who's the screenwriter in there with Bradley them as Whitford's well. fantastic and there's lots of little bits that are you know non-dialogue-y lots of you know it's a very non-verbal acting performance from Emma Thompson she expresses her disdain for some of the stuff that goes on around her in such a brilliantly English way um and I just, I just enjoyed this film a lot. It reminded me a little bit of Finding Neverland in the sense that it's an origin story for a story that we know really, really well. Um, and there's, it's just a brilliant, brilliantly told, fun, quite moving tale. And there's also there's great comedy in the UK-US culture clash stuff. She's so primly British, and she's and and she genuinely finds the Americans' charm offensive offensive. And I think that's just it's really funny to see that and see you know the the more Disney goes over the top in trying to woo her, the more horrified she is by him. And I think that's it's just it's it's endlessly funny in that because neither of them quite gets what where the other is coming from, and that sort of you know two countries separated by a common language mm. element is is just really well played. So do we get to see her reaction to Dick Van Dyke's accent? <laughs> we do get to see her watching the film. Yes. Because, spoiler, Walt Disney made Mary Poppins into a movie. What? Mm, yeah, it's true. It's the kind of role that Judy Dench 
is also very, very good at. She imbues it with enough warmth and humanity to to, to see through really, you know, a character that's kind of unpleasant a lot of the time. Mm. You know, she's not particularly nice, P.L. Travers. But you do care about her because Emma Thompson makes it makes it so. And I think that's really, really vital. And Tom Hanks, you know, he's good as well. He, uh, he's good as well as Disney, but it's very much... Thompson's film, I would say. And we gave that four stars. Four English stars for saving Mr. Banks. Uh, it may get crashy Oscar race. A lot of. Uh, I think certainly the acting race. I, d- I don't know about the yeah. best picture. I think it might be nominated. I don't see it winning, but I think it's it's in with a real shot in the acting race. And it will make you want to go and fly a kite immediately. But be careful not to do it during the lightning. Indeed. And also stay during the credits to hear the real PL Travers on tape because that's A, hilarious, and B, really, really interesting. Fantastic. Okay, next up's a long-delayed remake of Stephen King's Carrie, or perhaps more accurately, Brenda Palmer's Carrie, starring Chloe Grace Moretz as a young schoolgirl who begins to display telekinetic powers, and Julianne Moore as her religious nutjob of a mother. Kimberly Pierce directs... <laughs> so what do we make of this? Is this another film to cast on the ever-growing pile of unnecessary horror remakes? Let's go to another girl with telekinetic powers. It's Helen. Hello. Yeah, I guess. Um... This is a little bit unnecessary, but at the same time, I can see why they did it. I think they have some really interesting ideas and really interesting sort of uh, twists on what De Palma did. And, and you know, in a, in a couple of cases, they've gone back to Stephen King's book and taken stuff out of that that maybe De Palma didn't. Um, so I think that's interesting. I think here, if you know the story, basically, uh, a, yeah, a put upon girl starts to develop these telekinetic powers just as she's also kind of overcoming bullying at school and beginning to maybe try and find her own feet independent of her her very domineering mother um, and it all goes horribly wrong following a prank uh, that isn't really a spoiler that's in the trailer you can't really avoid it um, but I think the problem for me was first of all they did put all the last act in the trailer so you know where this <laughs> is going and you're kind of building up to it and, and there isn't any real sense of I thought, kind of dread or creeping tension mm. during the early stages of the film. You're just kind which of waiting to get... The which there is, absolutely. Yeah. But I think you're just kind of waiting to get to the good stuff later on. Um, what they do do, though, is they, they spend a lot more time, I think, on the relationship between Carrie and Mrs. White and her mother. And, and Julianne Moore is on, as you'd expect, very, very good form as the mother. Um, and I think, you know, they do a little bit more with that and they try and make more of that relationship, but you still don't quite have this sense that it's all building and building and building towards something momentous. And actually, even then, when it all does go horribly wrong, it it feels quite quick. It feels actually not... I mean, in the book, reading the book, you know, she really roams through town and there's just destruction everywhere. And, And in this one, because I think they're trying to keep your sympathies with Carrie to some extent there isn't the same trail of destruction to the same extent. Mm. Um, and again, that, that somewhat takes away from, from the sense of horror and the sense of terror mm. that you're getting. So I think they, I think Kimberly Pierce is essentially not set out to make a, a, a horror movie exactly. She's set out to make it a sort of a character study of Carrie. And I think to, in that, she kind of succeeds. She has clearly a lot of sympathy for the other school kids. You know, they're not portrayed as, as plain evil. They're portrayed as, you know, teenagers who make a, a huge and horrible mistake. Um, and I think that's nice, but it means that the movie is less than some of its parts. Mm. It's interesting you start talking about the uh, the last act being uh, shown in the trailers, because I feel this is a movie... The marketing of this movie is very, very strange. It's almost marketed for people who almost solely remember the first movie mm. and I can't see people you know 1920 really connecting with this film 
yeah through the marketing anyway it's it's, it's just I mean, a, what teenagers nowadays have have actually seen the De Palma film yeah or read the book I mean the posters said you know her name yeah but most people don't yeah precisely it's it's a little bizarre for me but we gave this one three stars yeah it, yeah I mean there's really good stuff in there it just yeah. doesn't quite hang together also about this week is The Best Man Holiday which is a sequel to The Best Man the review should be on the website by the time you hear this podcast uh, we also have Shune Jolie which is a, a French coming of age drama which might suffer from being released one week after Blue is the Warmest Colour we gave that though four, four stars. stars four stars plus there's Leviathan not sadly a remake of the Peter Weller classic and that is also four stars Helen describe that one very very quickly for that the folks is at home an experimental art house documentary about fishing in the North Sea completely narrative and, and dialogue free but a stunning collection of images very immersive it says it stars Arthur Smith is that the stand up comedian Arthur Smith no that is some bloke a bloke called Arthur Smith who would have credited it uh, also we have the US animation Free Birds which is in no way <laughs> trying to attempt to cash in on Angry Birds Ali, Ali can you describe that in one word Turkey Turkey hooray happy Thanksgiving everybody uh, two starts for that film and that's it for the Empire Podcast Woo! join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by Alexander Payne director of Nebraska and of course about Schmidt and Election and The Descendants and all those great films and also we'll be joined by the star of Kill Your Darlings uh, the former boy who lived one Mr. Daniel Radcliffe and that is a very very funny interview let me tell you until then it's goodbye from Helen Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Bye-bye. It's goodbye from Ali. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to buy a release date porn mag. See you next week. <laughs>